0: Now, as you think about that and have, I'm sure, scary images coming to mind, that answer is probably going to vary from generation to generation in this room. For example, I was talking with my dad recently, and he informed me that the Wicked Witch of the West from The Wizard of Oz terrified him as a child. And of course, I looked at him like, really? The Wicked Witch of the West scared you, but I think his exact words were, to me, were the Wicked Witch and those flippin' flying monkeys. (laughs) I've already shared uh, from this stage how those villainous spooks and specters from the original Ghostbusters terrified me, not only in my dreams, but also haunted my refrigerator. And of course, if you were a younger millennial or perhaps even an older Zoomer and grew up watching the Teletubbies, you might say that the likes of the bear and the lion are the number one big bad of your childhood. Now, you see this picture, and they look really unassuming. And I'm going to tell you, I had a chance to watch some videos about this. That is scary stuff. That is really nightmare fuel. So if you get a chance, go watch some of that after church. You will not sleep well tonight. I guarantee that. But... As we get older, I believe that our fear of movie villains tends to shift a little bit. We grow less and less afraid of the obvious evildoers with their shifty eyes and their shady demeanors and even that maniacal laugh. And instead, as adults, we typically become more afraid or more fearful of the unexpected villain in movies. It's that guy or that girl that you never see coming the unassuming friend, the sidekick, the love interest, that at the end of the movie, it's revealed that they're the ones who've been pulling the strings the entire time. And I think the reason, or one of the reasons, that as adults we have a greater fear of the unexpected villain is because there's a sense of reality to their presence in our lives. Think about this for a second. Not one of us probably wakes up in the morning thinking, I'm afraid that I'm going to run into Darth Vader or the likes of Freddy Krueger in the frozen food section at the grocery store. It doesn't happen for us as adults. The overtly obvious movie villains, while still scary on screen, possess little threat to us outside of the two hours of us sitting inside of a movie theater. But the same can't be said of the unexpected villain, can it? Because the unexpected villain can simultaneously occupy space on the screen as well as in the reality of our life. Because I think the truth is, is that every one of us sitting here today could probably share stories about how we've been blindsided by someone who we thought was on our team. Maybe it was a longtime friend who betrayed your confidence or perhaps it was a coworker who threw you under the bus to try and score points with a supervisor. Or maybe it was a spouse who broke your trust. The unexpected movie villains scare us more as adults because each of us has unexpected villains in our stories. And while these real-life villains probably don't share some of the same nefarious goals as their on-screen counterparts, the damage that they can cause us is just as real and just as terrifying as any movie. And I think as Christians, as people who profess to be followers of Christ, one of the most jarring, unexpected villains that we will encounter in life is other Christians. We're blindsided by someone who professes to be a follower of Christ, by somebody who says, I have faith, it seems especially insidious because those people who profess to be followers of Christ are the last people that I would ever expect to be a villain in my story. Just like the movies, we rarely see them coming. And I got to be honest with you this morning that this has been true of my own faith journey. I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior when I was in sixth grade, and have walked with the Lord from that time till this. And from that point, I've had pastors, I've had church leaders, I've had other believers who have played the part of the unexpected villain in my story. And I could sit up here and recount different stories from you, but the truth is this, that there have been times when I've been strung along. I've been overworked, and at times... I've had to be been misled or been backstabbed by other believers. I've been forced to pick up the pieces that that backstabbing has caused. There's been times where I've been devalued, I've been ignored, and I've been put on stage to be made a public example of. And the truth is that no matter how many times, no matter how many times that I feel the sting of betrayal from another Christian, It's still shocking because it's the people that I expect the least to do that to me in my own life. And of course, here's the other side of that coin. Is that it would be very disingenuous for me as a pastor to stand up here this morning and say to you that I haven't harmed or hurt other people or been the unexpected villain in other people's stories as well. In fact, there may be some of you here this morning who could testify to that very fact. Please don't say amen. The bottom line is this, is that whether or not I've been blindsided by another Christian, or whether or not I'm the one who's perpetuating the blindsiding, some of the scariest people are the unexpected villains that we encounter in church. Now look, I know that in a room of this size, I even know just looking out into the audience and seeing some of your faces, some of the stories that are here in this room, that every one of us, if we had the time, could come up here and share stories about church hurt and how they've been wounded by unexpected villains at church. Maybe for you as you're sitting there this morning, maybe maybe it was a pastor, a spiritual leader that you looked up to and, and you trusted and they had a moral failure and because of that moral failure, they became an unexpected villain in your story. Maybe for you, you had another believer that you went and shared something with them in confidence, something that was personal and deeply uh, important to you, and you shared it with them in confidence only later to find out that it had been shared broadly with other people. Maybe it was a children's worker or a youth pastor who used their position of authority to perpetrate abusive behavior. Or perhaps maybe for you, it was just somebody that judged you unfairly based on your past. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like me, and for the first time you're recognizing in your life that I have played the unexpected villain in other people's lives. Maybe it was because I was caught gossiping about somebody else. Maybe I wronged somebody and they came to me seeking forgiveness and I said, I will not forgive you for what you've done to me. Maybe it's because you've sought to undermine pastoral leadership at your church to go behind their backs and gossip about them. Or perhaps it's because you've been living a double life and people outside of the church look at you and say, that dude praises Jesus on Sunday but lives like hell the rest of the week. That's a hypocrite. Whatever the reasons are, I think if we were honest for just a moment, I think every one of us could identify different things, actions, or attitudes in our own lives that we would say, that's caused pain to somebody else. And so the question for us this morning that I want to invite us to wrestle with is how do we strive as people who profess to be followers of Jesus to not be villains in other people's story? In other words, what practical steps can we take to not be a jerk? And so we're going to look at that this morning through the lens of God's word. And thankfully, God must have known in his infinite wisdom that this would be something that his fallen creatures would struggle with, that his children would struggle with from time to time. Because in the book of Genesis, from the very opening passages in the book of Genesis, God addresses and gives some uh, surprising insight into the conditions or the motivations of the unexpected villain. And what's more is he points us towards an even better hero. So I want to invite us this morning, if you have your Bibles, either uh, physical Bibles or on your Bible apps, to turn to the book of Genesis 4, and together we're going to explore what God has to say about not becoming a villain in other people's faith journey. We'll begin in Genesis chapter 4 and begin in verse 1 through 16. And it reads, as follows. It says, When Adam made love to his wife Eve, she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to Abel. And just an interesting bit of um, Bible nerdery here that there are a lot of theologians who actually believe that Cain and Abel were twins. Because that word in the new King James version, they clean up, it says Adam knew his wife, but then and gave birth to Cain, but it doesn't use that same language when it gives to the birth of Abel. And so a lot of theologians believe that because that word is absent, that Adam knew Eve, that Cain and Abel were actually twins. Fascinating, right? And so now Abel, it says, kept the flocks, and Cain worked the soil. Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. But you must rule over it. And now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? You talk about sarcasm on a dude. I mean, that dude's got some, some major guts to be able to say something like that to the Lord. But he says, I am, I am my brother's keeper. And so the Lord responds, he says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops to you. You will be a relentless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Edom. As you can see, the story of humanity is going from bad to worse. Last week, Pastor Jason talked about the fall of Adam and Eve. And as sin has entered the world, things are really beginning to spiral out of control as it begins to spread throughout creation like a cancer throughout the body. And as a result, when most people come to Genesis chapter 4, typically they focus on uh, Cain's egregious murder of Abel. And understandably so, the events in Genesis chapter 4 underline or lay out for us the first recorded premeditated homicide in human history. However, I would suggest to you this morning that simply glossing over the previous verses means that we are missing out on some important insights on the condition of the human heart. And more specifically, in relation to the context of what's being said here, the condition of the heart of a villain. There is something much deeper stirring in Cain in this moment. He didn't wake up one morning and just decide, I'm going to go kill my brother. And as it turns out, It all starts with church. In order to better understand Cain's motivations here, we need to go back in our story just a few verses. So let's look back at verses 3 and 4. It says In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Did you catch what's happening? Cain and Abel, in these verses, it's literally talking about the first church service. It says that they essentially were going together to worship the Lord. There were no steeples, there were no choirs, there was no bad coffee or lukewarm coffee where they were going. But they went together to worship the Lord with an offering. And that word offering in the original Hebrew literally means a tribute or a gift. And similar to church today, this was this brother's way of coming together to exalt God in his grace and in his mercy and his goodness and his sovereignty over their lives. They were giving back to God a portion of their livelihood Similar to the way that we might have come into Mosaic Church today and dropped a tithe in the joy box, or how we may have sung songs this morning about the goodness of our God. That's what Cain and Abel are doing in this moment. So, why does it matter? It matters because the story that we're looking at does not begin with the murder of Abel, it starts with Cain going to church. Cain is literally worshiping God just a few verses before he's murdering his brother. He is the unexpected villain in this story, and understanding how he moves from a position of offering worship to God to a position of where he is harming his brother is important because it can help us to avoid some of the pitfalls that Cain stepped into. So what happened to this dude? How did he get to this place? Well, verse 4 and 5 gives us some important clues, and it reads like this. It says that the Lord looked on favor with Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So it says that Cain became very angry and his face was downcast. So what's, what's the big deal about all this? This rivalry, this, this exchange between these two brothers all starts with one very simple thing. It's that God looked with approval on Abel's offering and rejected Cain's. And so what is this approval that the author is talking about? Why did God reject Cain's offering? To start, we have to understand what it means, this idea of approval. And when you hear that word, picture a father's look from his uh, of a proud look at his kid, Every one of you who is a parent has probably experienced this at one point or another where you've seen your kid do something incredible that's just blown your mind and you've looked at them and just beamed with excitement. This is not an issue of favoritism, but this is instead the look from a good dad and a proud dad in its purest form. And we see this all the time from kids. Remember back even to your own childhood for a moment that there was probably a moment with your mom and dad where you said, Hey, mom and dad, look at me. See me. Because we wanted the approval and the applause of our parents. Yet, ultimately, it's not the applause of our parents that we really desire, is it? It's something that God has put deep in the recesses of our heart to desire approval and recognition. And ultimately, that's why human recognition always falls short. It only lasts temporary because it can't fill that hole that God has placed inside of us. And so we can understand that Cain and Abel, much like us, were probably approaching this offering with a desire to seek God's approval. And so what caused Cain to become the unexpected villain in this story? Well, the book of Romans tells us that with God, there is no favoritism. So it wasn't an issue of God comparing one versus the other. So if it wasn't favoritism, what caused God to reject Cain's offering? The good news this morning, church, is this is not something that we have to guess about, that we have to theorize about. The Bible tells us very clearly, not in the book of Genesis. But if we go to the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 4, it says that by faith, Abel brought a better offering than Cain did. It's that simple. Cain Or Abel had faith where Cain did not. And we see in Abel's offering an example of his faith. It says that that Abel brought the very best of his flock and gave that as an offering to God. And as best as we can tell from the scripture, Cain did nothing important or special when he brought his offering. And if he did, at the very least, we know with utmost certainty that when he brought that to God, it lacked the faith. That Abel had as well. So then, why did Cain offer anything at all? Maybe it's because of the approval that we talked about earlier. I think that was probably part of it. But I think more likely, Cain is like many of the half hearted Christians who walk into church every Sunday and place their offering in the bucket. It's dead religion, it's dead religion. They go to church because they think it's what they're supposed to do. I'll go to church on Easter because it's what I'm supposed to do. I'll go on Christmas because it's what I'm supposed to do. They do religious activity because they think that that's what God wants from them, when in reality they're missing the true heart of worship. And it's very simply this, is that without faith, obedience to God is completely worthless and empty. Cain became an unexpected villain in Abel's story because his worship of God was motivated by outward religious duty. Somewhere in his mind, Cain believed that if I'm just good enough, if I just do enough, I can earn God's favor and approval in my life. And what Cain didn't know is what Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, that without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's impossible to please God. It doesn't matter what you do. Without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. And so we get an even greater sense of the condition of Cain's heart after he learns that God has rejected his offering Genesis verse four, chapter 4 verse 5 says that Cain was very angry and his face became downcast. And we see in this moment the sin of jealousy and pride beginning to take root in the heart of Cain. An empty religious obedience church, when we get to a place where we're falling God more out of duty than out of faith, will almost always prompt such a response in our lives whenever we seek to earn our own way to God, whenever we think that I need to prove my, by my merits, by my work, that God can love me, I'm always going to look with an angry or jealous eye at the offerings of others who might supplant my own. I'm always going to esteem my offering is better and what other people do is less. And so we gossip. And so we slander. We tear down other brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can be made to look better. And the amazing thing about our God is that as Cain is gradually moving down the path of the unexpected villain, God's not willing to give up on him. God's not willing to give up on him. Before he murders his brother, God shows up and gives him this warning. In verse 6, he says to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, but you must rule over it. This warning from God is serious, especially for those of us as we consider the question about how not to be an unexpected villain in the lives of others. He tells Cain that, Cain, if you are just willing to do what is right, a.k.a. if you will worship me in faith, then you will be accepted just like your brother Abel. But then he gives him the warning. He says, Cain, if you continue to do what is wrong, namely, if you continue to seek my approval by your own works, by your own merits, by your own righteousness, then watch out. Because sin is crouching at the door ready to consume you. It's literally this idea of a predator crouching behind a tree looking to stalk its prey. And of course, this is a general warning about the broader nature of sin and God's warning to us to watch out and not let it have mastery over us. However, given the context of the conversation that's transpired between God and Cain in this moment, I believe that there's an implicit warning from God about the danger of religious activity. Because any time we seek to earn God's favor through our own righteousness, we make ourselves vulnerable to being attacked by sin. And the reason for such a stark warning from God is because obedience without faith actually has nothing to do with God. Instead, it's all about us. It's all about me. What can I do to earn God's approval? What can I do to look good before other people? And even more insidious, what can I do to earn the approval of men? And as we move ourselves and put ourselves in a position where we seek to prove our own righteousness by our merits and by our good works, we can be led more and more down a dark path of the unexpected villain where we will do anything that it takes to protect the object of our worship, ourselves, me. Even if it means playing the role of the unexpected villain, even if it means that I have to hurt another brother or sister in Christ. And so Cain's life is a textbook example of what not to do if we don't want to be a villain in other people's stories. But the story doesn't end there. Thankfully, Abel offers us a better way. We see in Abel that he has an outward obedience to God that is motivated by an inward faith. In other words, Abel trusted God in faith for his salvation. He understood what would be written by the Apostle Paul centuries and centuries later in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, that no one will be declared righteous before God by the works of the law. We might add to that our own good works. Abel knew through some divine revelation very early in human history that there needed to be a substitute, an offering for his sin, in order that he might be made right with God. And so in faith, that through this divine revelation that he has received from God, he gives God the firstborn of his livelihood. He gives God the very best that he has to offer. He sheds blood on the altar. And it was this faith that pleased God. It wasn't the sacrifice, it was the faith. And Hebrews tells us that it was by faith that Abel was commended as righteous. But even more than Abel's sacrifice, incredible as his insight and revelation was, his sacrifice points us to a better sacrifice. Abel's sacrifice points us to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross, the firstborn of all creation, as a substitute for me and for you, for every one of us seated in this room today. It points to us the right way that we are to come to God, both as when we want to become a Christian and as the Christian we've become. It's always faith in a blood sacrifice, a substitute who has died on our behalf. And Jesus is that man. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice that when we call upon his name in faith, we are made right with God. We dare not come to God out of the motivation of our own goodness, out of our own merits, either as a sinner who's seeking salvation or as a Christian who's seeking approval from our Heavenly Father. Abel shows us a better way through faith. And this is the good news of the gospel. This is where the good news of the gospel intersects with our conversation today. The cross of Christ diffuses the danger of the unexpected villain. Because when I understand in my heart, when I believe in faith, that there is nothing that I can do to ever earn God's love or favor apart from faith in Jesus Christ, I no longer have to jockey for position to have my merits be recognized by God or other people. I'm made righteous, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done in me. I no longer have to strive to tear people down. I no longer have to build myself up. Instead, I am simply free to love others, to serve God because of the fact that I have received righteousness through my faith in Christ and nothing else. An outward obedience that is motivated by an inward faith helps to safeguard our hearts from the danger of the unexpected villain. An outward obedience that is motivated by an inward faith helps to safeguard our hearts from an from the unexpected villain. And as we've surveyed some of the tragic events the narrative of Cain and Abel this morning, I think it's easy for us to understand that religious obedience can be a danger to ourselves and others. I think conceptually, most of us can understand or wrap our minds around this room that, that when we are obedient, that, is, uh, that we practice obedience that is motivated by faith, that's going to safeguard and protect us from that unexpected villain, both in our lives and the lives of others. But the question of how we practically apply this to our lives this morning is one of those things that is more challenging especially if you're sitting here this morning and maybe you've recognized for the first time that not only have I been a victim of an unexpected villain, but perhaps also because you're recognizing for the first time that you've played the part of an unexpected villain in somebody's story. It's very challenging. What do I do with that? And thankfully, Jesus has a lot to say on the subject of faith versus religion. A lot of his teaching dealt with this subject and this matters because Jesus in his sermon on the mount specifically addresses this idea of the unexpected villain and stresses the importance of faith and obedience. And listen to what Jesus says here in Matthew 25 or Matthew 5:23 and 24. He says therefore if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother or your sister has something against you leave your gift in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, and then come back and offer your gift. If you're like me, and you've caught the understanding and application of what Jesus is saying here, you're probably thinking, uh-oh. Oh, crap. If you didn't catch the application, let me briefly summarize for you a paraphrase what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, guys if you are the unexpected villain in someone else's story, don't bother to come to church. Don't bother to serve in the children's ministry. Don't bother to drop your tithe in the joy box. Because all that outward obedience matters little to God unless you first go and reconcile with a person that you've hurt in your past. Get your heart right before you come and worship. Get your heart right before you come and serve. And then when you've done that, then come and bring your offering to the Lord. And i got to tell you guys, these are incredibly challenging words from Jesus. As I sat there and read and processed this week, man, I felt so much conviction coming over my life because I know that there are people in my life that I have played the part of the unexpected villain. And it's so much easier for me as a Christ follower to show up on a Sunday morning, to sit in a pew, to raise my hands. It's so much more comfortable. It's so much more easy. It's, such, uh, it's less messy to do that than it is to actually move towards reconciliation with someone that we've harmed. But the truth is this, is that God in this moment, Jesus in this moment, does not mince his words nor does he offer situational exemptions. He simply says that if you've played the part of the unexpected villain, before you do anything else in God's name, go and make yourself right with that person. And here's the truth this morning, church, that as I wrestled with this this week, that if we really believe the good news of the gospel, if we really believe that what matters most to the heart of our Father is our hearts and the hearts of others, there should be nothing that stops us from taking Jesus' words at face value. If we truly believe the good news of the gospel, there should be no length that I would be willing to go to in order to seek restoration of my heart and the hearts of others. Even if it's uncomfortable. Even if it's hard. Because that's what God has called me to. In the movie, The Straight Story, Alvin Straight did exactly what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a true-life drama about a 73-year-old man, Alvin Straight, who decided that it was time to stop the silence, it was time to stop the anger, it was time to break down the wall that he and his brother had built between them over a period of 10 years. The only problem was is that Alvin lived in Iowa, and his brother lived in Wisconsin. Alvin also didn't, couldn't drive and didn't want to take the bus. And so Alvin decides in this moment that he's going to drive his riding lawnmower 300 miles from Iowa to Wisconsin in order to seek restoration with his brother. My question to you this morning is this, is this church. How far are you willing to go? Is there somebody that you've been an unexpected villain in their life and you recognize this morning that, my God, you have called me through faith to make right with them before I show up in church, before I do anything else in your name, how far are you willing to go to make that restoration? Will you be like Alvin and let no distance stop you to attempt to make things right? Imagine with me for just a moment what our church services might look like if we diligently practice the words of Jesus the way Alvin Strait practiced those words? How might the stories of the unexpected villains be redeemed for the glory of our God if we sought to obey God, not from religious duty, but out of a faith that's motivated from our hearts? I bet that as we sit here as a church, We might say that there would be a lot more ables in this sanctuary than there are canes. Will you pray with me? Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering. For service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world, visit us at mosaicwi.com.